0: Christopher Marco, PhD student at the Faculty of Law at the University of Cambridge.
1: Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research at Cambridge University.
2: Christopher and Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today. We're having a look at the recent Uber ruling regarding taxi services in London. Christopher, perhaps we can begin with you before we come to Simon, and you can tell me a little bit about this ruling. And what's been going on with Uber globally?
0: Well, Uber launched in 2009. Uh, It was an offshoot of Google Ventures, and ostensibly it's a taxi providing service. The company itself doesn't like the name for regulatory reasons. But since 2009, uh, there has been a pretty consistent backlash worldwide everywhere. Uber has tried to enter the marketplace. Primarily the objections that people have to it is that it's an incredibly disruptive influence on taxi industries and virtually every market they're entering there is a sort of cartelization of the taxi industries and Uber represents a pretty sustained and serious threat to the sort of monopoly that taxi industries have in various cities around the world. So there has been a lot of opposition and claims that Uber is undercutting the livelihood of taxi services and ride providers sort of worldwide.
2: There has also been a safety issue uh, in India, for example.
0: That's right. I mean, one of the issues that has sort of plagued uh, Uber since its foundation is that they sort of perform their own CRB checks on their employees, whereas... Taxi regulators in London, for instance, provide sort of comprehensive background checks and vetting of their drivers, whereas Uber is more or less left to their own devices to do so. And there's been a couple sort of instances in India, in the U.S., where uh, drivers have assaulted passengers. Um, the flip side to that is, is that the mechanism that Uber provides allows not only drivers to sort of rate um passengers but passengers to rate drivers so in the event that there is an assault or some sort of event takes place there is a mechanism to theoretically identify the person whereas when you get into a black cab you can be driven by anybody so there are assaults but on one level it actually provides a bit of a safety mechanism for passengers.
2: So Uber have retaliated with their own blog they're very feisty uh, globally but why so much litigation worldwide Christopher?
0: Well, again, Uber is part of what's known as the sharing economy, which is sort of a point-to-point, person-to-person uh, economic model, and Uber's kind of at the forefront of this. And in any sort of entrenched industry, whether it's Uber with taxis or Airbnb with the hotel industry, when these industries feel that they're under threat, they obviously react and they want to sort of ensure that they're protecting their own interests. Uber has faced not just regulatory issues and the issues about people being assaulted and, and, and passengers, but everything from uh, a bit tax evasion for not getting proper taxi licenses to not vetting drivers so there's a sort of whole host of issues that has beleaguered uber worldwide
2: and do the legal systems of these countries vary in terms of how easy or difficult it is to to challenge uber is the law the right way to challenge them
0: Well, the law is certainly the right way to challenge it. It's really the point at which these challenges take place. And what we're seeing now is sort of a ex post facto reaction to Uber once it's sort of entrenched itself in various jurisdictions. All these sort of regulatory problems are creeping up now. The ideal situation would probably be a model whereby these problems are sort of vetted and dealt with before a company enters the marketplace. But because Uber allows people to make sort of point-to-point connections, they're they're able to sort of take hold in cities and begin their service and sort of flourish before they sort of attract the attention of regulators and governments to sort of curtail certain business practices. But it's being proven incredibly hard to do so.
2: And what about the UK and the recent ruling? How did that come about?
0: Well, the recent ruling in the UK came about because Transport for London petitioned the High Court for clarification on actually a very specific technical point about the function of taxi meters in taxis. The ruling this past Friday differs from all the other litigation that's gone on worldwide because it really does turn on a sort of technological interpretation of what constitutes a taxi meter. And the high court ruled that the Uber app in conjunction with the car does not constitute a taxi meter in the same way that the traditional black box that you would see when you get into a cab functions as a taxi meter.
2: The ruling said I I believe part of it was that essentially and I quote because the Uber app does not internally calculate the cost of rides but instead relies upon GPS and external services for calculations the app does not constitute a taxi meter is that right.
0: That's right, and and this is what's really interesting about the ruling, because it seems that the court has preferred form over function in making their decision. A traditional taxi meter, when it's installed in a black cab, is mechanical and electrical and it's sort of hooked up into the drivetrain of a vehicle and it calculates time and distance based upon mechanistic action of the car moving. Now, what the court has done with this ruling is to sort of bifurcate the functionality of how the Uber app functions because the driver has a phone that is pulling uh, external GPS data. The the court has essentially said that it does not constitute a taximeter because it does not have an operational connection to the vehicle itself. Now, there's a couple issues that are really sort of at odds with this. Uber drivers have to rent their devices from Uber. They're provided with a cell phone, which is locked. They can't access any other sort of devices on it. And it's used exclusively for the purposes of providing rides. Now, they're also provided with a cradle, which physically attaches the phone to the car. So the court has seemingly sort of bypass the interpretation that there's not an operational connection, that even though the app is not calculating the physical movement of the car, it is still connected to the car and it is pulling GPS data, which is tracking the movement and thereby providing the fare. So it's a very slight circumvention of the uh, interpretation of what constitutes a taximeter.
2: meter. And, and will this ruling stay or will it be challenged do you think and how does it affect other countries too well
0: transport for london has said that they are going to be appealing the ruling straight away but i think it's going to be a very major victory for uber of course the uk high court's ruling aren't don't bind any other countries in terms of how they might interpret its findings but as far as i can tell this the uk ruling is the only one in which really that turned upon a sort of technological point in other jurisdictions there was matters of uh, regulatory compliance and taxation and operational licensing But I think that the ruling will have an effect in terms of how people understand what the service Uber provides is and the actual functionality of how their app works and how they provide their service. So I I think they're going to be celebrating this. And how important are regulations? You've spoken about the law and the legal ruling
2: in the UK, but would record regulations and more regulations help solve these problems before they come to a head?
0: Well, it's hard to say that more regulations are always sort of the silver bullet for solving problems. It's not necessarily more regulations, it's correct regulations instituted at the right time. I think with Uber and other companies like Airbnb, what we're seeing is a late reaction to these sort of new economic paradigms that they present. And the law is in a sense, sort of struggling to keep pace with the type of terraforming of Um, business practices worldwide. Um, So I wouldn't say more regulation is really the tonic for things. It's really getting in at the sort of entry level or the sort of R&D stage or the startup environment and having a lot more clarity about what is going on and what will be affecting the market before these things become locked in, sort of entrenched within society.
2: Christopher, in your essay, A Taxi Meteor by Another Name, you say that for For consumers, the app provides the illusion of simplicity and convenience, but in actuality, the mechanisms through which Uber operates is remarkably complex, as it and every other GPS-enabled device depends upon a constellation of at least 24 GPS satellites in geosynchronous orbit to provide all devices in the world with their positioning data. That is the global world we're working in. You know, these complexities, you know, how do they impact on the consumer?
0: Well, I mean, if we sort of take it back to what a taximeter is, I mean, the taximeter is a 120-year-old piece of technology now, and it really hasn't changed by and large since it was first invented. It was designed for one purpose, and it fulfills that function to this day quite effectively. It is a device solely for the purposes of calculating fare and distance over time. Now, what Uber kind of represents is a much more complex technological paradigm, whereas it is an app which is nice looking, it's simple, it's relatively easy to use, but it's embedded in a very complex smartphone platform, uh, whether it's iOS or Android, which has its own host of functionality, which is hooked up to uh, cellular networks, to GPS networks. So it's a small part of what is a very complex network. So from the consumer perspective, what the high court ruling kind of is a tacit endorsement of is that this type of complexity is kind of what we're going to be faced with, sort of moving forward, and that humble devices like the taximeter may well be outliving their sort of function, even though they perform it perfectly well to this day.
2: Yeah, so, you know, technology moves on and it moves society on with it. But is the law lagging behind technology, and how can it catch up? You say at the end of your essay that the law can help stabilize these advances.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a common theme within people who work in the intersection of law and technology that the law lags behind technology, which is to say that, you know, sort of technology marches on inexorably and the law has to struggle to keep up and we all scramble to sort of curtail what technology provides us. And to a certain extent, that's true. But the other side of the coin is is that sometimes you hear people saying that legislation is rushed or it's hurried or because it wasn't drafted correctly, it stifles innovation so it's true in one point that the law does lag behind technology but i suppose moving forward is that there's no magic you know bullet to how we can sort of rail in things like uber but it really is the point at which we begin to engage with them within society as regulators as politicians to be able to understand what companies like uber and the technologies they they utilize you know, represent for society. And I really think that it's critical that there is a sort of earlier point of intervention so we can really understand how this technology will change us, how it will change our industries, our economic paradigms, so that we are not sort of left to, left reeling by sort of, you know, sudden seismic changes within society that we might not be prepared for.
2: Okay, well, if we just go for a little bit of societal history, and the law, uh, Simon Deacon, your professor of law at Cambridge. But are we in a new era of luddism? Can we look back at history and technology and find some relevant lessons?
1: Well, some things are new, of course. Um, In the Industrial Revolution, the particular technologies were were completely different from those we're considering today. But this absolutely isn't the first time that that we've seen disruptive technologies undermining existing social and economic relationships. We've been here before. And so it's very interesting to, to think about the history of Luddism what Luddism represented and what its legacy is when we're thinking about Uber today.
2: Can you just define what Luddism is? They were the machine breakers, the people who destroyed the printing presses and burnt the papers they destroyed the sewing machines you know sewing was run by the old guilds is that what you mean by luddism the machine breakers
1: well we think we think of, of, of the luddites as as machine breakers and they they were but what what luddism actually was was a series of protests in a particular particular place particular time um, 1811 to 1812 or so in Nottinghamshire, in in the East Midlands of of England. And these were protests initially against employers in in the hosiery trade who were not paying the customary or agreed minimum wage for that trade. And Ludism was almost the last and rather desperate um, response to a process of technological change, which had seen Workers in the guilds become disempowered. So Luddism came right to the end of this process, and what ended as a a violent protest and one which was suppressed had previously been very much a legal protest. So, for over a century or so, there had been an intense legal battle over the conditions under which the guilds could regulate trades like this. And Luddism actually coincides with a series of court judgments, not just in Hosiery, but elsewhere, in which the courts had refused to enforce the law in favour of the guilds. So that's the background to to Luddism.
2: And the guilds, what kind of power did they have? They were the old trade unions, if you like. If you you had a trade, you belonged to a guild to practice that trade.
1: So in a very funny sort of way, the the, the guilds were the forerunners of the trade unions, but also the forerunners of the modern corporation, because within the guild, there were both employers and workers. Um, And the the guild was an association which defended the trade, maintained quality standards and, and regulated training and entry into the trade. So both masters and journeymen and, of course, apprentices were united by their common membership of the trade. And actually, it was very difficult within the framework of the Guild to operate as a capitalist um, employer. And merchants and financiers could supply capital to producers, but they weren't allowed to take control of proto-industrial enterprises. The basic principle here was that people within the guild, within the trade, had to learn their skills, become apprentices before they could operate within these industries. So when the first merchant capitalists came along, they hadn't um, done apprenticeships, they hadn't trained in in, in this area. Were they permitted by law to organise capitalist firms in which there was direct labour relationship, not mediated by the protection of the guild? Now, the early answer of the courts was no, they couldn't, that the merchants couldn't enter. But later on, the courts suggested to a changing reality, which was that the factor was replacing the guild and and capitalism as we came to know it was replacing these, these old structures of the so-called moral economy of, of the late Middle Ages. Now the reality is today in the same way the courts have a very difficult job they've got to apply legislation not at all designed for today's circumstances to, to changing technologies. And very often one has the impression in history and also today the courts will reinterpret legislation to try to accommodate changing technologies. And we saw that in the, in the 18th century and maybe we're going to see that today with Uber.
0: Yeah.
2: And, and the challenges to the law uh, in the 17th century, it seems remarkable to say we had challenges to the law then. Did it change the hold of the guilds?
1: Well, I think what happened was, in the end, the, the Guild failed as, as a model. The, the Guild was exclusionary, the, the Guild was hierarchical, and also the Guild couldn't compete with mass production, which did provide, in the end high quality goods for a far wider market than the guild could ever cater for so the decline of the guild was perhaps inevitable in all these ways but what the guild was good at was creating social capital and embedding production in the wider community now that objective hasn't gone away so what replaced the guild eventually were other things that we we came to take for granted we we, we took for granted uh, collective bargaining we took for granted the welfare state and also the regulatory state taxing and controlling companies all these things were taken for granted And they were part of a a new social compact, in effect, mid-20th century, just reached its peak. Some accommodation between labor and capital, so there was capitalism, but there was also the welfare state. Now, Uber isn't the first to begin to chip away at the welfare state. This has been going on for a very long time. But when people talk about the so-called Uberization of work, they have in mind extreme casualization. Um, An entity, an employer that is seemingly remote from the law... Um, technology which dematerializes the firm. So who knows where Uber might be? Okay, there's a cloud and information's loaded up there. Uh, Uber is over there somewhere in, in California. Maybe they have a local subsidiary in the UK. All these things are possible, but um, th- th- there's no, no longer the visible face of capital that we're familiar with. Makes it very difficult to regulate capital, makes it very difficult for, for, for governments to tax these firms. And of course, Um, Many people will say, as they did about mass production in the 19th century, what Uber provides for customers is a definite advance on what has existed before. So courts and regulators are under very strong pressure. Now, having said that, um, Uber is openly and explicitly disruptive. So Uber, the, the, the people behind Uber know what they're doing. They're they can see possible financial uh, advantage. They can see profit in undermining other business forms. But this, of course, requires a change to regulation. So the example of the black cabs in London is a great example. Cabs have a monopoly. The, the law protected that monopoly as a quid pro quo for taxi drivers learning the knowledge and acquiring certain skills. That's the kind of compromise which Uber is undermining. So the question here is not not just does the... Taximeter resemble the uber app that's a very important question as christopher was explaining but the bigger issue is what's at stake when we try to regulate uber now one view would be we, we just shouldn't regulate it okay we'll just let the market work but in fact we've always regulated this type of activity there have always been debates about licensing about training and about taxing these companies that's nothing new
2: So if we look back then to the lessons of history, you say that the laws were repealed in the early 19th century. So maybe we don't need more laws, more regulation. Perhaps we need a relaxation of them.
1: Well, we may well find that there is some relaxation of these laws, but the, the impact of, of the High Court ruling in the London Uber case, we, we don't know. It, it may be uh, appealed, of course, but in due course, there'll have to be some new regulation governing Uber and black cabs and minicabs. So I don't think TfL is about to stop regulating the taxi trade in London. And the same is true of cities worldwide. There are very strong reasons to regulate public transport and, and, and the taxi industry. The, the, the bigger question, I think, is how we should respond to technological change which is this disruptive the first point to make is that technology isn't above politics and it's not above economics so this technology doesn't arrive from nowhere it doesn't arise in a vacuum Uh, uber uh, for all the talk of the sharing economy meaning the end of capitalism uber is a capitalist firm um, it's owned by shareholders who've invested in it. It's an offshoot of Google, as Christopher was explaining. And it's there to make profits. It's not there to provide just a public service, or maybe they can do both. OK. But Uber is a capitalist firm. It can only operate in our modern economies because there's a legal system which gives these companies corporate personality, enables them to hold property in a certain form enables them to diversify risk, and enables them to protect their intellectual property against predation. So without intellectual property law, especially a company like Google, especially a company like Uber, which operates in a virtual sphere, absolutely can't function without the law to protect its interests. Now, therefore, to say that the law can't do anything about these companies is obviously incorrect. When we say we can't do anything about it, we're making a political choice to allow Uber all the advantages of IP law and company law and give them none of the obligations of tax law and regulatory law. That's clearly a political issue, not a legal issue.
2: And does the law always in these eras of technological change lag behind is what we're witnessing nothing new but maybe the speed of the technological advances at the moment leaves the law looking very limp.
1: Well, some law lags behind, but without some law in the first place, there wouldn't be Uber, as, as I was explaining. Without IP law, without company law, without the law that protects a capitalist firm like Uber, there wouldn't be an Uber. So in that sense, Uber is presupposed by certain forms of facilitating law. Now, you may, you may say, let's just have those laws which facilitate business, but it's never been that simple. Uber will expect it to be expect the law to protect it from unfair competition from people who might try to steal its ideas. Some of these high-tech firms can protect themselves by devices which make it impossible to reverse engineer their technology, but eventually there's a limit to what they can do by stopping reverse engineering. They need a legal system, they need the rule of law to to protect them. And it's in the state's interests to protect such firms where they are innovative, where they're producing new products, but also the law has an influence in taxing and regulating these firms because we want these companies to produce positive externalities, not just negative ones. So here's a good example. The debate about regulation requires us to think about how Uber should be allowed to compete with alternative forms of organisation, and also whether it's really the case at the end of the day that Uber should not be responsible for such issues as health and safety and insurance arising out of its activities. Because traditionally, we al- we found ways in the past of allocating these responsibilities to corporate entities. The means were found to ensure that companies could absorb and diffuse the risks associated with their activity. And these are the institutions of the welfare state. Now, in the case of Uber, we don't yet know what Uber really pretends for the form of work whether we're seeing the end of the so-called standard employment contract. We don't really know what Uber portends for a kind of global capitalism where companies can't easily be regulated or taxed. Okay, What we do know is there has to be legal and regulatory innovation to keep up with Uber. But we also know from our own history that this innovation is perfectly possible.
2: Christopher, how disruptive is the Uber technology?
0: I mean, certainly Uber represents a very disruptive paradigm for the taxi industry. But it may well be the case that it's a industry that is in need of disruption. If you look at some of the places where Uber is fighting legal battles, New York City, for instance, where they have this taxicab medallion cartel, which has been going on, where the cost of licensing a single taxi can be upwards of a million dollars. Um, there might be a, a a need to disrupt these industries, what some people call the sort of cartelization of taxi industries. that
2: Rather like Simon's Guilds.
0: Exactly. Entirely like the guilds. Uh, Among Silicon Valley people, Uber kind of represents one of the more sort of ethically dubious companies. And there's a whole host of reasons as to why one might object to Uber. They might also be the sort of lesser of all evils that we see manifesting. Now, that's not an endorsement for why we should sort of allow them this sort of permissionless innovation and to be able to sort of make take make inroads into markets all over the place. But they do sort of portend. A future in which this kind of disruption may actually be beneficial on a long enough timeline.
2: And just finally, Christopher, any predictions for the
0: future? If you look at where Uber has grown out of, it's grown out of Google Ventures. And I think Uber has a lot of money invested in their business model. And one business model that Google has a lot of money invested in is driverless cars. So I think one thing that might you might see growing out of the Uber ruling is that if you have permission to operate these vehicles via smartphones and apps, that's not too far down the line. We might see driverless vehicles that we might be able to summon via apps, which might bypass a lot of the problems that we're seeing now with vetting drivers and background checks on drivers. um, I don't think that is too far off. And I think that Uber has not been entirely covert about their desire that that is where they see their business model heading.
1: Simon, do you agree? Well, I think what's interesting about what Christopher just said is we, we can't anticipate all the social and economic consequences of such a radical new technology. But all, all we can say here, I think, is that at the end of the day, there is power in our modern democratic countries to control corporate activity. So companies like Uber do critically depend upon the legal infrastructure which which the state provides. Now, this opens up a possibility for future regulation, but I think we won't get this unless it's an, an open and free discussion about the consequences of what these companies do. So Luddism may have failed to prevent the rise of the factory, but Luddism did help bring about the response to industrial capitalism, which was the welfare state. So we absolutely shouldn't stop resisting and protesting where we see social consequences of technological change which are very negative. The lesson of of, of the Luddites is we need to continue to have an open debate about this and protest and resistance have their place.
2: Simon Deakin, Christopher Marco, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. The jury may
1: be out, but the future is at least exciting. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you, Bonnie.